This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. It's cold, baby. Okay, so section three, lot 543. Wait, where are we? We're over here. Right there? Yeah, we're in the driveway. So we gotta go all the way down one path and then two paths, and on this side, it's gotta be over here. Like it's this one. My 12 year old daughter and I are searching for Eugene Burt's gravesite in Austin. It's very, very old, but it's supposed to be pretty big. Across here, this is older. Let me see if I can find any markers here. Are the dad and the son together? Uh, yeah. It says they're together. Oh, babe, there's markers. Come here, look. That hard to spot. The markers are worn from age and weather, so it's almost impossible to read many of them. But we keep trying because oftentimes visiting the grave sites makes me feel the most connected to the people in my stories. Okay, now you start looking for the, uh, yeah, that particular headstone. It's, it's around in here somewhere. We'll keep looking. In November of 1896, everyone in Austin knew where to find William Eugene Burt. He was downtown in the city's district courthouse, and he was going on trial for murdering his wife and their two little girls. The prosecutor accused Eugene of killing them because he was facing financial ruin and a prison sentence. His defense attorney announced that they would claim that he was insane at the time of the killings. The trial was sensationalized in the press. Local historian Monica Ballard says that the courthouse was packed with people who hoped for just a glimpse of the monster who murdered his family. Hundreds of people packed the courtroom in order to see what's going on. He would be marched into the courtroom, handcuffed, and his hat would be removed for him. Gawkers stared at Eugene. One woman approached him at the defendant's table and surveyed his face very closely. Eugene seemed to either not be aware that she was there, or he just ignored her. Either way, he offered no reaction. And then things got even stranger. After everybody files in and everyone takes a seat, he would flutter his eyelids closed, and he would remain in that state until... Everything was done and court was dismissed. He just closed his eyes the whole time and there would be no indication that he was 
I don't know, under under self-hypnosis, if he was cognizant of anything that was going on. No one was entirely sure. He seemed to have absolutely no... There was nothing going on. What was happening with Eugene Burt? When family and friends took the stand, many described Eugene's marriage as seemingly happy. He was a wonderful father. But others called him selfish, unreliable, and unstable. Then his brothers testified for the defense, even though they had accused him of stealing their money. Roscoe and Monty did the best they could, and even Minnie took the stand and testified, you know, that that she saw no evidence of any reason why he would do this deed. Yeah, there were character witnesses who who came forth and said, no, he was he was a loving father and and husband. You know, he, he was always giving any expensive presents. And then his, his brothers would have to, you know, under cross-examination admit, yeah, well, a lot of times he stole the money for those presents. A parade of people from his life walked through that courtroom all testifying to why a husband and a father would have done this. And throughout it all, Eugene Burt registered not one reaction. Even during one dramatic, unplanned incident in the courthouse. There was one time when testimony was being given about drawing the bodies from out of the cistern and the state of the condition of the children in particular, about how their hands and feet were bound with wire. The three-year-old was wearing a a nightgown and the, the toddler was in just a diaper. And someone had brought in a baby into the courtroom. And as this testimony is being given, everyone in the courtroom is being affected, not only by the testimony, but by hearing this baby in the back of the courtroom, and babbling on. And their hearts are being wrenched because of this. And they turn and they look at Bert to see what his reaction is. Nothing. There's just nothing going on there. And the the newspaper says, whose heart could not be moved? His heart. Monica says that Eugene's lack of emotion was interpreted in different ways in the media. Their opinion vacillated between, oh, he's certainly holding up well under the strain, and how can he be so cold and heartless as to not hold any reaction to the testimony that's being given about him. What a cold-blooded killer he must be. There were both ends of the spectrum there. We know that a defendant's demeanor in court can really sway a jury. If the suspect doesn't take the stand, jurors might slyly observe them at the defense table, talking with attorneys or visiting with family members on breaks. That image can affect how a jury votes. So Eugene Burt, who was handsome and young, did himself no favors by appearing so disconnected from the trial. He even seemed to doze every once in a while. But why? Descendant Patricia Childs has a theory. Could Eugene have been drugged in any way during these proceedings? Like, how could he not have reacted when the little child, you know, was crying or fell or something? And, and I'm thinking, well, if, if somebody's given you morphia, maybe it just doesn't matter anymore. Patricia brings up a quote from a newspaper article from one of the physicians who examined Eugene, a man named Dr. Wallace. Dr. Wallace got on the stand during the trial and said, You know, Judge, I haven't been feeling well, so I took a bit of morphine this morning, so hopefully I'm lucid enough to testify. 
The judge said, sure, no problem at all. I asked forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Christine Montrose about Eugene Burt's odd reaction in court, his lack of emotion. Is there a whole range of reasons that someone could be falling asleep in the courtroom? Sure, morphine could be one and, you know, psychiatric symptoms could be another and disinterest and and lack of remorse could be another. You know, all of those possibilities are, are probably true. So Eugene's apathy in court might have been drug-induced, not a lack of remorse. And in the late 1800s, his sedation might have been court-ordered. It made me wonder about modern-day defendants. Can they ever be forcibly drugged? Retired law school professor Linda Frost says no, but with some caveats. Today, you wouldn't sedate a criminal defendant so that they could get through the trial. That said, there is a lot of law around whether you can force medication so that somebody is competent to stand trial. So it doesn't mean that somebody won't be medicated by the arm of the state in order to go to trial. And of course, people take medications for all sorts of reasons. People may be medicated, but for the state to force medication, there has to be more of a legal justification other than, well, he's going to be very stressed out and this will will calm him down. It could be to control symptoms for mental health conditions. It also could be that they are psychotic and schizophrenia can have active symptoms that we're more familiar with, the, the kind of word salad, the acting out. But it also could be a lack of engagement and a lack of emotion, a turning inward. So we don't really know why he would have been that way, whether it was medical, whether it was psychological, or whether it was malintent and a lack of feeling. The stakes for this trial were very high for Eugene Burt. If he were found guilty by reason of insanity, his life would be spared and he would be institutionalized. If he were found guilty, but sane, he would die at the gallows. Eugene's defense team admitted that he had killed Annie and Eleanor and Lucille. Monica Ballard says that his attorneys never tried to accuse anyone else. The evidence was so circumstantial that it was him, that it could be no one else. That was never brought up that it could be ever anyone else? No other suspects, no. And he was never brought up to testify. They thought they could do it without him testifying. Because he's probably going to dig himself a bigger hole, so they were smart. So their defense was, he was insane. He had to have been insane to have done this. If he was indeed a loving father and a doting husband. He must have suffered from temporary insanity in order to do this, that those were moments of temporary insanity. But here's the problem. During Eugene Burt's murder trial, his attorneys never provided any evidence that he was legally insane. They had character witnesses detailing what a good man he was, how he was never violent. They admitted that he was a murderer, but they never clearly stated why he was legally insane. And I think it's because they knew that Eugene Burt wasn't legally insane. Legal insanity was set at a high bar even in the 1800s. The defendant had to be unable to understand their actions were wrong. According to most legal experts, people who are legally insane don't cover up their crimes because they don't understand that what they've done is a crime. On the witness stand, doctors fumbled around with the term moral insanity. 
In the 19th century, psychiatrists who were called alienists were trying to sort out how someone could be physically sound and mentally sound, but they would still do evil things like murder their family. Moral insanity was about as close a label to psychopathy as they could get, but that's different from mental illness. Mental illness can manifest itself in many ways, extreme mood changes, withdrawal, excessive fears or worries. Psychopathy is an antisocial personality disorder. Psychopathy manifestations are much narrower, a lack of ability to love, to establish personal relationships, as well as extreme egotism. Eugene Burt didn't seem to exhibit any of those characteristics. I asked Dr. Christine Montrose to explain a little more about psychopathy. She says, to begin with, let's avoid using the term psychopath. We've shifted away from using nouns to describe people. So a person is not a schizophrenic. They're not a sociopath. Um, It's a person who has schizophrenia. You know, it's a person, just like a person with diabetes, we're not describing any longer as a diabetic. We're describing them as a person with diabetes. So I think sociopath and psychopath are these labels that tend to me to have more of of an antiquated historical flair. Who are we describing? These are people who I think the lay person would describe as kind of lacking the moral compass that the rest of us might have. Not really an awareness of of right or wrong, difficulty feeling concern or empathy toward other people, frequent kind of self-serving behavior, risk-taking behavior. They don't care about other people. I think when someone is not just demonstrating antisocial traits that mean that they're lying and stealing and conning, but instead they're really engaging in kind of sadistic behavior and taking pleasure from someone else's pain. I'm not sure that was Eugene Burt's behavior. He planned the murder of his family and then covered it up. It doesn't sound like he took pleasure in it, but who knows? He seemed disconnected during his trial and even after but he might have been resigned to dying on the gallows. Descendant Jeremy Childs says that the 1800s must have been a very confusing time for psychiatry and psychology. I think a psychologist today would have a field day looking over these trial notes from the physicians of the time and trying to make heads or tails of of what Eugene Byrd actually was and had he participated in other illicit activities prior to these murders. Linda Frost says that many doctors in the 1800s weren't qualified to determine someone's sanity, and many doctors now aren't either. It's also important to think of the role of doctors back in the day. They did all sorts of different things, right? Having a medical degree doesn't automatically qualify you to do a forensic assessment. Most doctors today should not be doing forensic assessments. Now, under the Texas Code, my gynecologist could do a forensic assessment. Is my gynecologist skilled and qualified to do that? No. (laughs) But under the code, doctors can do that. On December 1st, 1896, after a murder trial that lasted less than two weeks, both sides rested. The all-male jury deliberated that night over dinner. Women wouldn't be allowed on juries in Texas until 1955. The jury discussed the case the next morning over breakfast before casting their ballots. Judge R.E. Brooks read the jury's verdict. They were unanimous. 
he is found guilty and sentenced to hang. That might not have been much of a surprise. After all, the defense never offered the jury any alternative suspects, and they seemed to offer little proof of Eugene Burt's insanity. His team immediately pledged to appeal. Everyone in the courthouse turned to Eugene Burt. Reporters noted that he didn't even bat an eye. No reaction, only silence. As Eugene walked back to his jail cell, a reporter asked him about the verdict. Eugene replied, I have nothing to say until the Court of Appeals passes on the appeal that would be made. The prisoners in his jail block all asked about the verdict. He replied very matter-of-factly, guilty. Eugene seemed lucid, even composed, and he seemed resigned that he would die. If I'd seen Eugene Burt's strange courtroom behavior, I'm not sure what I would have thought. But regardless of whether he was sane or not, his lawyers hadn't proven it, so execution was on the table. The debate over whether to execute someone who is mentally ill is centuries old. We know that there are often circumstances where the suspect is predisposed to mental illness. I asked forensic psychiatrist Dr. Christine Montrose about that. We know that there are mental illnesses that run in families, and we know also that there are, you know, mental illnesses that spontaneously arise for people who have no history of mental illness in their families. And then there are people whose families are riddled with psychiatric disease who emerge psychologically intact. What does all that mean? Certainly, if your family on both sides has people who suffer from bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or some of the psychiatric illnesses that we know to be more heritable, would you be at elevated risk compared to someone who didn't have any of that in their family? Yes. Does that sentence you to the certitude that you are going to also suffer that same fate? No, it really doesn't. But Bert's descendant, Julie Norton, says that if Bert had been mentally ill, that she's conflicted over his fate. When I look at a criminal, I am offended by that person. But I also feel like there is some cause. It had to be something that wasn't just his mother and father because his two brothers didn't kill anybody. Something caused it. I don't think that's how that kind of thing happens. I don't think that's inherited in families. So mental illness isn't enough of a defense for you? It it is a horrific story. I don't think it's understandable. It's clearly not logical. No logical person would do that. So it seems pretty cut and dry, and they have all the evidence that they need. However, the judge that oversees the trial says, wait a second, he kind of puts the brakes on things, and... He wants to investigate Eugene Burt's mental capacity. By January, Judge Brooks had not yet set an execution date. And then came word that the governor of Texas was stepping in. Judge Brooks thought that the jury's verdict was just, but he had to respect an order from the governor. And it was an order made after an influential and respected businessman intervened, Eugene's older brother, 
Brother Roscoe rides to the rescue again. God love him. I mean, after the rabbit, I think I would have written off my relatives. I have found that families are much more committed in some ways in the 1800s. Brother Roscoe puts in a request for a stay of execution, and it is signed by Governor Culbertson that you can't execute William Eugene Burt because he is now insane. The trial drove him insane, and it would be heartless to execute an insane person. He belongs in an institution. What was all the evidence from the end of the trial until they were making this admission? It was the fact that... During his trial, he showed no emotion and that he was constantly observed in his cell, even after his sentencing, to show no cognizance that his life was about to end. There was no sense of desperation or anything like that. They just didn't understand how anybody could be facing this and not have it drive them mad. Okay, so what happens? He's given another trial in January of 1897. But all of this was because of Roscoe, not Eugene. Eugene didn't want this second trial. He, he, he wanted to hang. And so when Roscoe came through and, and said, no, oh, no, 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 he's insane. You can't kill him. They reported on his reaction. The newspaper said, over in his cell, Bert displayed little or no excitement. Perhaps Roscoe felt badly. Roscoe and Monty were the ones who accused Eugene of stealing from them. He was going to be arrested and likely convicted. That might have been a trigger for the murders. Or maybe Roscoe really did believe that his brother suffered from insanity. Eugene Burt was now back in an Austin, Texas courtroom, and he didn't really want to be there. He wanted to be done with all of this. He was ready to be hanged. Unlike his first trial, this time the courtroom discussion was focused squarely on Eugene's mental condition. There were a a parade of physicians, psychologists, uh, as they were during the day, uh, people who worked for the mental institution who had the most exposure to knowing what an insane person looks like. Finally, the trial ended. The jury retired behind closed doors. Everybody testified and everybody had their say, and at the end of it, there was a hung jury. The jury couldn't reach a verdict No one could seem to determine if Eugene had been truly insane. And the state wouldn't execute an insane man, so there was a stalemate. What would happen to Eugene Burt? Eugene reacted like he always had. He had no reaction. Monica reads a newspaper article from 1897. If he was uneasy about the coming of today or the uncertainty of his existence, he did not manifest it in the least. He talked to Jailer Hughes quite freely yesterday and evidenced no apparent interest in the outcome of the fight to save his life. So the second trial did not have the whole histrionics or lexitainment that the first trial did. And now there was a third trial, and this one was much more interesting than the last. The defense brought up Eugene's traumatic birth. Remember, his father reported that his wife, Cleo, had some psychotic episodes during her pregnancy. 
and she had to be restrained during Eugene's birth. The defense said perhaps that caused his insanity. Dr. Christine Montrose helps me wrap my head around that. Can your actions later in life be connected to what happens in the womb? I don't know that we know the answer to that question, Kate. I mean, is it possible that if someone sustained physical trauma during birth or neurologic trauma during birth, that that could then affect their ability to self-regulate? That I think we could say with more confidence. But in terms of like the psychological experience of having gone through a traumatic birth as a neonate, um, I don't have any idea about that. (laughs) That would feel like a stretch of a defense to me. It sounds like we can rule out birth trauma as a cause for Eugene's violence later in life. And so the third trial came along. One thing that was really bugging me about, about the trial was that the last medical expert to testify was Dr. J.W. McLaughlin, and he was a Burt's family physician. And Dr. McLaughlin had been listed as a witness for the defense, but was absent from the city at the time the defense made its case. Dr. McLaughlin offered testimony that was confusing to everyone. I think even he was confused because he constantly contradicted himself. McLaughlin determined that Bert was morally insane. But then on cross-examination, the state quite simply asked McLaughlin if he had ever noticed insanity in Bert, to which McLaughlin replied that no, he had never observed that. And then on redirect, the defense said his opinion of a man who had murdered his wife and children entirely without motive. What do you think of that man? And McLaughlin said, well, that man would be insane. What? So in other words, anytime someone was asked, is this man insane? If they knew him, they would say, no, that man is not insane. But asked about the situation disconnecting from the person that they knew, they would agree, yes, that man is totally insane. So it was the familiarity with Bert that that made everybody just as confused as as when it starts. So this comes back to the mystery surrounding Eugene Burt. He seemed so normal with the exception of a few outbursts here and there over the years, and of course the thieving and the fraud. But he was normally composed. He seemed like a loving father and husband. How could this happen? What you saw in the courtroom is what he still is, often aloof, personal at times, serene, a little creepy, but sane. There was no wild behavior. There were no fits of weeping or fear, no pleading for his life. The jurors returned and another hung jury. Once again, a panel of men couldn't decide if Eugene Burt should die because he was cold-hearted or if he should live in an institution because he was legally insane. Jeremy Childs says Eugene might not have been legally insane, but he does think that Eugene was mentally ill. One of the things that sticks out to me is that at the trial in 1898 to determine his moral sanity, he writes a letter. I don't think it's in his own defense. I, it, it, it's so bizarre. He's almost speaking about himself in the third person. This, I think, goes to his mental state at the time. In one of those letters, Eugene Burt wrote, Great God be thanked, the hellish brute that took me the sweets of my life, that snapped the human cords of my heart, that took from me and sent to heaven my loved ones, will never see the fulfillment of the ends of lawful justice, 
how happy to lay and dream, to hear the howls and shrieks and screams of his tortured soul. The jury read copies of the letters. Did Eugene Burt's writing convince jurors that he was legally insane? There was yet another trial, and this time, the jurors finally agreed on a verdict. Eugene Burt was deemed sane. It was finally over, and Eugene seemed pleased. He was sentenced to hang on May 27, 1898, almost two years after he killed his family. But his brothers appealed to the courts one last time. And on May 23rd, another appeal was made, but the governor was like, no, 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 this man wants to die. So let him. The appeal was rejected. He would die on May 27th. There was no saving him now. Former federal investigator Fred Burton believes that Eugene Burt was rightly convicted. He doesn't believe that someone who is legally insane can methodically premeditate a crime like Eugene clearly did. Whether he would be rightly executed is another story for a different season. At what point did they quote unquote snap? How did they go about in functioning in, in, in a very complex kind of murder? I would argue that they don't. Now, you could say that that person is not functioning in a normal kind of space like the average person is, but that person was very methodical and very detailed and certainly knows right from wrong by the efforts to cover up that crime. Regardless, Eugene Burt had always maintained his innocence. The night before his execution, Burt spent all night writing and he apparently disliked what he wrote because he tore a lot of it up. And then he dozed in a chair with his feet up on a table, which apparently was his habit rather than lying in a bed. And then after a hearty breakfast, he said he was really hungry. He wrote his last public statement in which he claimed to have killed those who murdered his family. Yeah, he said, the man who killed my family, I, I took care of him a long time ago. Why do you think he did that? Do you think that's real or do you think that was just a front? I think in his mind it was real. If he had some sort of dissociative condition, he made that disconnect, maybe even on the train. Maybe when he, when he saw Mrs. Driscoll and decided in his mind, he killed off that part of him who did that deed. As for what awaited him, he wrote, I'm prepared to accept the situation with as little complaining as possible. Face the new foe and have my banner of satisfaction unfurled to the breeze until it and I sink into everlasting oblivion. That's some Victorian writing right there. Flowery, flowery language. One, I think he's in a way admitting to his, his body committing the crimes, but it wasn't his soul or his mentality that was committing the crimes. And that part of him has already been punished by some supernatural force, uh, God, or whatever you want to think about it. Um, and so that's an interesting admission on his part uh, to, to speak of it in that way, uh, basically admitting guilt, but at the same time not by claiming that it wasn't, something else was in control of his body at the time of the murders, basically. I interviewed Dr. Ann Wolbert Burgess for my other show, Wicked Words. She's the criminal psychologist who helped shape the FBI's behavioral science unit in the 1970s. 
She told me that she's asked serial killers to draw their crime scenes, and often they draw from the point of view of someone floating above the bodies, totally disconnected from the crimes. That might have been the case with Eugene Burt. So he was led to the scaffold calmly. He looked over the crowd of about 100 spectators and reporters, and he commented, there are so many more people here than I thought there'd be. It was in the courtyard of the county jail, so that's, that's probably, probably quite crowded. And to the crowd, he announced, except for the disgrace attached to the scene, it is the happiest moment of my life. What's your read on that? He so wanted to die. Once he killed off whoever he thought killed his family, the purpose of his life was over. His arms and legs were pinioned and he seemed relaxed. A black hood was placed over his head. Eugene was quiet. The sheriff pulled the lever and Eugene dropped. The Burt's family doctor stood underneath and watched as Eugene fell. He had known Eugene his entire life. Dr. Wooten noted that the killer's body seemed to actually relax, not stiffen as was usually the case. It seemed as if Eugene Burt was finally at peace with his death. After his body was loaded onto a cart, Dr. Wooten and several physicians examined him. The noose had broken his neck, yet he lived for almost 12 minutes. Many whispered that it was an appropriate ending for a man who had murdered his lovely wife and his little girls. Annie's mother and sister also seemed at peace, finally. They would eventually be buried next to Annie and Eleanor and Lucille. Fred Burton says oftentimes family members find themselves conflicted with an execution. At the end of the day, when you're looking at these horrific crimes of violence like this case, it's very easy for people to say, well, isn't that terrible? But when it becomes personal and it involves a family member, there's a different uh, feeling. You know, it depends on the family and the person, but there is this desire for justice. I wouldn't say vengeance, but I would say justice. Somebody needs to be held accountable for what took place. But what if the killer ends up in a mental institution, which is what might have happened with Eugene Burt? That would not be punitive enough for a lot of families. Not at all. Uh, I think most families would say that that's an easy cop-out or the system has been gamed to the point where that person was able to take advantage of this. But Eugene Burt was never given that opportunity. Jeremy Childs says this story of Eugene Burt and his family will forever confuse him. In reality, I think most crimes, you know, are typically crimes of passion. And I would imagine this probably will end up, if, if we ever figure out exactly what happened, being just that. But this doesn't seem premeditated to you? It does seem premeditated and in some ways, and that's what makes this all so interesting, is that it, it's easy to go either way, because there's a lot of things that he did after the murders that seemed like he, he would have had to have those planned in order to do it in such a timely manner that by the next morning, he's having breakfast with his, his servant. He is relatively calm and able to function. Yeah, and again, that's what makes this kind of interesting is that you start to lean one way and you're like, oh, I can totally see that. But then you start leaning like, oh, what about this? Like, oh, damn it, I forgot about that. Um, you know, so it, this is kind of my favorite type of crime that are really, really difficult to explain because there are so many different explanations that seem totally valid. 
I agree. There's no simple explanation for me either. Without modern tests, it's just not clear if Eugene Burt struggled with mental illness. So much of this has to be conjecture. I do a lot of that because I deal with very old cases. But I suspect that many suspects in history did struggle with mental illness, as we know many do today. Dr. Christine Montrose says that the study of mental illness is imperative for society. My guess is that as we learn more and more about mental illness and science continues to move forward, we're going to be better able to trace and predict who's more likely under what circumstances to inherit these mental illnesses. It's not a a sentence for people at all if their family, if they have a strong family history. It's a a concern, but not, not a sure sentence. We've talked a lot about why this happened. How could a man kill his wife and his little girls? Eugene's mind might have been mired with mental illness, psychopathy, or brain damage. Defense attorney David Shepard has defended killers who he says are irredeemable. He says those are all options, but there might have also been a simpler explanation. You don't have to fit into a DSM category or axis to be a terrible person and do terrible things. They're not schizophrenic and they're not any of those things. They're just goddamn mean people and uh, do bad things. William Eugene Burt was buried quietly in Oakwood Cemetery in the family plot far away from the remains of his wife and children who were buried under her maiden name, Powers, in Mount Calvary Catholic Cemetery. During the brief ceremony, a heavily veiled woman approached, laid a small bouquet of flowers on the casket, and retreated anonymous. It was thought that she was a friend of the family's. Despite Eugene Byrd's crimes, his family was still very respected. His victims, Annie, Eleanor, and Lucille, were featured in newspaper articles for years after Eugene Burt was executed. And then their story was lost to time, like the stories of many victims. Their home on 9th Street is no longer there. It was the scene for three gruesome, tragic murders, killings that still seemed to haunt the spot where the house was, even almost 130 years later. Listen to this coincidence. One of the victims of the Annihilator murders was a a woman named Susan Hancock, and she was murdered Christmas Eve, 1885. This was the murder scene that Eugene Burt visited when he was a teenager. Aside from that, there's another connection to Sue Hancock. The connection is that her daughter ends up marrying a man named Cerbery. In 1900, she actually uh, is running a boarding house at, yes, 207 East 9th Street, the very same house that the Burt murders took place in. So there is an odd connection in that one of the victim's daughters ended up living in the same house. That property where the Burt's built their lives and Eugene destroyed their family seems to have bad luck. And as for where the home once stood, nothing prospers, nothing stays very long. That building is under constant renovation, but never occupation. It's as unsettling as this whole story. There's another marker. Can't read it. I don't know, babe. We might be going down a dead end here. 
My daughter and I are still wandering through Oakwood Cemetery in Austin. We're searching for Eugene Burt with no luck. We were so happy to have found Annie Powers and the girls back in the Mount Calvary Cemetery. It was clear from their family plot that they were valued and loved. Eugene Burt does have a headstone somewhere in Oakwood next to his parents and his brother Monty, but it's a very cold day and we're tired. So we give up on finding William Eugene Burt. Normally, we would be very frustrated, but this time, we're not. Oh, babe, this might be too cold. He's out in here somewhere, it's okay. I actually, in some ways, like this better. I don't really know if I want to find him. Because he doesn't deserve it. Because he was a killer. Yeah. Who cares? Thanks for listening to this season of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. You can hear the trailer for our next season in one week, next Monday. If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Editors Jason Whaling, David Fabello, and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Researcher Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.